Hello and welcome to Fofop Friday. Yep, it's new, but Fofop's coming out on a Friday. Now, it might not be Friday when you're listening to this because you might be in Australia where it's not Friday anymore, but it's Friday where I am, uh, which is America. Friday the 12th of February, in fact, I'm about to fly back to Australia, start a week of uh, work in progress shows for my Fire at Will tour in Canberra, and then I have a week back in Sydney to kind of put the show together after those uh, work in progress shows. My kind of aim with those shows is to go into them pretty loose and you know, try to, you know, discover things that I don't already think I think. Uh, so, you know, there'll be a journey, but that's the idea of them. I always find those shows kind of exciting. And uh, hopefully if the audience is in the right mood for them, I often find that they're really memorable shows. It's, it's, it's kind of nice to see me working through things, I think, and uh, discovering what I think about things at the same time as I discover it. So anyway, they're all sold out. But, uh, you know, that's what I'm thinking about at the moment. I've been doing a lot of research and thinking and you know trying to put together what it is I want to talk about on my tour um it's a particularly big tour for me this one we're moving my Perth and Sydney shows into uh the tour at the start of the year which means I do I I go from these Canberra shows to Adelaide for two weeks and then I do Brisbane for a week and then I'm a month in Melbourne with my uh, Sydney Opera House shows uh well they're uh, they're in the middle of that now uh, i am having tuesdays off in melbourne this year which is good because i'm trying not to get sick and in the last weekend uh well on the second last weekend we got the big uh, huge uh, live toe fop show that's just going to be absolutely insane and uh, then on the uh final weekend i'm going to tape uh, last year's show free will um you know for a dvd or a special or something uh, so anyway, I'll let you know if you, if you didn't see that show and you want to see it and you want to come along, uh, we'll be doing one show of that, but it means that the next couple of months for me are going to be pretty, uh, hectic. Uh, I'm even considering not drinking. I know, I know it's crazy. I don't even know how I will go performing, not drinking. I enjoy having a drink on stage and I may change my mind, but, uh, I just have so many shows over the next few months. Um, and I want to keep my health at the best it can possibly be during those uh, few months. And I think that at my age, uh, you know, I can't quite <laughs> go as hard as I used to. And uh, you know what? I do a lot of shows now. So when you drink when you work and you work all the time, you tend to drink all the time as well. And uh, so if I'm going to film this DVD and do this brand new show and do this uh, extra long tour, then um uh, I've got to get into it. So uh, anyway, that, that's uh, really what I wanted to tell you about. So that, that is on sale now. In fact, that starts really soon. February 29, I'm in Adelaide. The first four nights are previews, cheaper previews. Um, that'll be fun though, because I've obviously already done a week of uh, trial shows in Canberra. So I'll have a bit of an idea of what I'm doing by then. And uh, and then uh, Adelaide, I'm there for two weeks. Uh, Brisbane for a week. And uh, Brisbane, I will say, um, thank you so much for the support of the show. It is over 50% sold out the entire season. So if you want to get tickets for that, uh, they are selling pretty quick. So get into that. Then after that, Melbourne. Uh, Melbourne, uh, I am doing uh, the Comedy Theatre. I'm doing four weeks, uh, Wednesday through Sunday. Each week I'm going to do for that. Uh, then I am doing April the 7th, one night only at the Sydney Opera House. That's my Sydney shows this year. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, because of Gruen and the election and not knowing what's happening in the second half of the year at this point, we just uh, couldn't put stuff into that second half of the year. So um uh, particularly if I want to do a little bit of overseas stuff and, and whatever as well. So uh, one night only, Sydney Opera House, uh, nearly 50% sold out as well, which is amazing. Two shows uh, that night. 
Um, the first show is like three quarters sold out basically, but uh, the second show, there's still plenty of tickets available. And the second show is always a fun show anyway, you know, like I always like the second show. So come to the second show. It's a Thursday night. You'll be out of there by, I don't know, like 11. You'll be home by midnight. It's fucking Thursday night. Live a little. It's the Opera House. It'll be fun. Come see that. Uh, April 9th, as I mentioned, uh, Comedy Theatre, live TOEFOP. Uh, we can confirm John Deeks is coming to host uh, How Will Do You Know Charlie, uh, which will be very exciting. Uh, who else is doing the show? Daniel Sloss is doing the show. He's already confirmed to do the show. Justin Hamilton is confirmed to do the show. But uh, there will be a bunch of people. Because because we play that game, we can get a whole bunch of different guests in for that uh, because we have the theatre. Um, it is the theatre where I do my show. And so obviously we're just going to, I'll do my show that night and then uh, we'll have the theatre from uh, then onwards. So that gives us a little bit more flexibility. We haven't had in previous years. It's a bigger stage. It's a bigger room. So we can have some more guests. Uh, and obviously at the comedy festival this year, there's a whole bunch of people who have been on Fofop before. So it'll be pretty easy to guess who's going to come. And do the show, but I hope uh, and expect that a lot of them will come. It'll be really fun. Those shows are always fun. We don't do a heap of live shows, but we always, when we do them, try to make them really uh, fun events. So we'll let you know when that's on sale. You can support the podcast, of course. Uh, This podcast uh, that comes out an hour on a Friday, Fofop Fridays-ish. Tofop's gone back to Sunday nights because that's when it originally went out. So Tofop Sundays. Uh, Philosophy, my podcast, is coming out on Wednesdays, probably about every second week, I think. So uh, Kelly Carlin is my guest this week. Now, if that name is not familiar to you, the name Kelly Carlin, uh, you may have heard of her father, George Carlin, uh, you know, amongst the handful, if not the greatest comedian of all time. And uh, certainly uh, when it comes to my origin story, uh, you know, the two people who were most influential on... um, what it is that I want to do with my comedy were uh, Billy Connolly and George Carlin. Um, and I still uh, do not think uh, that, you know, there's anyone even in our modern day and age who, you know, ha- has the, who predicted so much, who knew where we were going, who identified and railed against it so eloquently and so early as George Carlin. Um, I'd been thinking a lot about George Carlin, just, you know, I think when I'm putting a show together, I try to, uh, like the writing comes last, you know. In fact, a lot of the time I like to do the writing on stage, you know, um, because it gets you to areas that you won't get to in your bedroom. Basically, that's that's what it is. I can write a bunch of jokes, you know. I can just come up with things. But the thing I, I, I've learned over the years is it's better to know what it is that you want to say and really know what it is that you want to say. When I was doing the political will shows at the end of last year, that's influenced my uh, state of mind for the the shows and where I'm at at the moment in my process, which is like, you know, at the end of the year, I kind of start to think, well, yeah, well, what have I been talking about the last few years? What What is it that I want to say? And I had been doing, I had to rewrite my political will show substantially because of Malcolm Turnbull. And so it, it, I really enjoyed that show. I really enjoyed what it became. And uh, I mean, I ended up only having done like less than 10 shows of it, which was for me is like the idea of writing a show and kind of writing it twice, you know, really, um, or one and a half times or whatever the fuck I did, but probably two hours of different material over the year went through that show. And, um, you know, that was in, in addition to my other show. And I, uh, but I enjoyed it. I like talking about the stuff um, that got me back to some issues and stuff and, uh, you know, I think people who saw it responded to it. I did one um, 
the last show of it, the last day of it, the last time I did the show was uh, the day of the Paris shootings. And uh, Amy was going to come and see the show that day. And uh, my next door neighbours, some people who live across the street from us, were going to come and see the show that day. And uh, we got up early that morning and I've talked about this a little bit. And I, I don't like to personalise these things because I think there is a danger in our modern day society that we immediately, when anything happens, want to make it about ourselves. And I certainly am not making about this about myself. Well, I guess I am in telling this story, but that's not the intention of me telling this story. Uh, the intention of me telling the story, I guess, is just to set the mood, to tell you what was going on. It was the end of my year. We had finished doing Gruen. Uh, we'd filmed the DVD early in the year. I put together the new show, which had been a really big thing to do. I'd written the political show at the same time and then had to rewrite it while doing Gruen. And this was the end of my year, you know. And uh, I'd taken the, the touring show overseas. I'd been to London and I'd been to Canada. And, you know, it had gone well. It had been a good year, I think. But... Um, I, uh, I I was tired and it was the last day and we were doing two shows because originally we were going to film it. But I enjoyed doing it so much over the two weeks and it had been such a living creature in that because what I wasn't really was prepared. And Amy gave me some really good advice. She said, well, you know this material back to front, just get out there and talk about it and make it funny. And, and that's kind of what those shows were. You know, if you saw them from night to night, there was kind of a spine within them, which was like things that I wanted to say. But in some ways, they were very differently expressed each night. And uh, I liked it. I really like that. I like really being across something, but also having the flexibility of like, you know, surprising yourself on stage in that journey. So uh, the last day of it was the Paris Massacres. And that morning, Amy and I sat and watched all of it. You know, we got up early and, you know, we had, she she knows uh, the band, the Eagles of Death Metal, who were the band that were caught up in the shooting and, and you know, enough that, you know, she's in email contact with some, and. But more to the point that we love Paris and, and we love that band and, you know, it just was the sort of thing that we, you, you immediately thought, oh man, if we were in Paris that night, that's exactly the sort of thing that we would be doing. And it just made it, you know, that, that shit just makes that stuff so real. And we, I think the other thing is that we were watching it in real time. Sometimes when you're experiencing these things, you know, in real time, I think it does make a difference, you know. In the same way as these massacres can be happening around the world, Boko Haram and uh, in other places, genocides that we don't see or we turn a blind eye to because we don't experience them. They're not in our living rooms. Syrian refugees is a good example, I guess. You know, the dispassionate response that we can have to these people who are fleeing a war zone. Um, but if we see a picture of a, a dead child, it immediately, you know, awakes the humanity in all of us because it's in our living room and we go, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anyway, I, uh, the whole point being that, you know, a morning like that makes you think of all those things and we watched it unfold in real time. And anyway, we went to lunch and we had a drink and tried to not think about it. And I said to her, I said, don't, you know, if you don't want to come to the show today, please don't come to the show. I'm not even sure that I want to do the shows today. I'm like, how do I, you know, if it had been my touring show, it would have been fine. I could have done the whole show, to be honest, without really having to acknowledge or reflect what had happened that day. But a show like the show that I was doing, a show that didn't really have a set uh, structure, a show that really had been about feeling the mood of the room and enjoying, you know, reveling around in these topics with an audience that you knew was there to enjoy those things. I mean, that was the thing about that show. It was very specifically targeted. We didn't do advertising. It was just people who'd come and seen the other show or knew through 
the podcast and stuff like that. So there's a, there is a different permission in that room than like, you know, a regular show that's just going to be seen by somebody who thought I was the guy from Spicks and Specs. So, you know, there's, it is a different sort of thing, but particularly because I was going out there trying to feel it every night. Like I just did not know what I would do on that day, particularly the day when I had to uh, replicate those emotions back to back, which is again, something that's a, a, a little, a little more difficult. And, and I didn't know if people had come. Because you know what? I might not have. But people came and and then you kind of assume, well, if they came, they've had this thought process as well. They've gone, no, this is what I want to do. So then, you know, I talked about it and sometimes it got uncomfortable, but it had to be reflected through my material. It was impossible for me to talk about asylum seekers or impossible to talk about like, you know, our defense system or the money we spend on defense or our relationship with the US and China or whatever the things were. Don't they sound like great comedy topics? Uh, it was impossible for me to talk about those things without um, reflecting the events of that day. It was impossible. And I had some people whose opinions I really respect in that room, John Casimir, the head of entertainment at the ABC, but who was the, you know, the creator of Gruen and uh, in conjunction with Andrew Denton, of course, and uh, you know, just one of the most uh, brilliant uh, people uh, that I know and that I respect his feedback, uh, immensely. And he gave me some, you know, positive feedback about the show and that, but Amy in particular was the one, like, she's not really into politics, you know? And, uh, and she really responded to it and, and, but more, it was more her comment afterwards about the way that I was engaged in the material. You know, she said it was like, I cared. Now I care about my show of all the things I talk about, you know, of course I do. Um, but I guess maybe some of this stuff just makes me really feel uncomfortable because I don't know how to make it funny and I don't know, but I feel like that's what George Carlin would have been talking about. So, uh, George Carlin's daughter, Kelly Carlin, who in her own right is an amazing person, uh, is on my philosophy podcast. Um, she wrote a book, uh, A Carlin Home Companion, which was based on a show that she did about her and growing up with George and uh, her life. And it's it's brilliant. It's a really brilliant book. I um, would recommend you uh, check out the podcast, Philosophy uh, with Kelly Carlin. That was a long-winded way to get to that plug. This is a really long introduction. Um, I did have someone recently say to me uh, that I should stop say I won't ramble on because I always ramble on. And I said to him, you think that's rambling on? <laughs> so I guess this is my version of that's not a knife. This is a knife. This is almost its own podcast. It's solo fop, intro fop. Uh, all right. Thank you uh, for the people who fast forward through the bit at the start. Uh, ha ha ha. You didn't fast forward through enough. I'm still doing this bit. Uh, but Matt Kirshen is always one of my favorite guests. This is an episode we recorded in December. And just after this, I'm going to put up an episode we recorded last week. So there you go. Double Matt for Fofop Friday. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Bye. The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deke speaking. Everyone relax, this is Tofop.
ironically, I'm not relaxed. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fofop. I'm Will Anderson and uh, returning guest Charlie Clawson have not spoken to him uh, since the day before the Los Angeles Podcast Festival when hopefully he was going to appear uh, live at the LA Podcast oh, Festival yeah. show, which uh, he did not uh, make it to in the end. But uh, he the was filming around long. Here's what here's the annoying Matt thing. Matt Kirshen, by Hello. the way. Hello, guest Charlie <laughs> Matt Kirshen. Just before hey, Will. you start, how's it going? It's nice to be back. Yeah. Now get into it. What were we going to say? So it was a very nice filming day, lots of fun. Uh-huh. It was Greg Berent's uh, thing that he was filming. And it was hard to pull rank on that because, you know. Yeah, and had, everyone on it. cancer this year. Well, also pulling rank, it, <laughs> the, the other people in, you know, there were people like Janet Varney and just other really great people. Right. So We had great people involved in our oh, podcast. Totally. Charlie and me and Dave and <laughs> Gary. And I was like, I think you've got it covered. Okay. <laughs> I think you had it covered there. But, um. They swapped the order of scenes I was doing just at the last when I was there. They're like, "Oh, we're going to film this one first. And if I filmed when I was meant to, I would have been, I would have made it with about uh-huh. half an hour to spare. Right? That was what we were hoping. That's we were hoping, hoping there'd be a little emergency mat at the end, but and then did not happen. It didn't happen. I was sad to miss it, but I heard it was a very fine show. Yeah, we had a really good time. In fact, we're going to put it up very soon, very soon. Uh, so we've been uh, waiting a little while to put it up, but uh, it is a, a really fun live show. Uh, so, what have you been up to in that time? It's been a couple of months, three months since we've seen each other. What's been going on? I don't. Well, I've mostly been in, in LA uh, with a couple of little road gigs here and there. Uh-huh. I, I was just telling you before we started recording, I've just started. Uh, Andy, who is my probably science co-host, and I were writing on a science show, which we got pretty much because of the podcast. They went, "Oh, you know science and comedy things." I mean, Come and sh- write on our slightly comedic science show. You should check next time any you're getting anything done to you these days how the person got the job. Yeah. Because I feel like <laughs> we're cutting a lot of corners and everything's like, you know, you're like, hey, uh, just before you do this surgery, you're like a real doctor, right? And you're like, oh, like, no, no. But I do host a medical podcast. Yeah, I have a, a, a very popular medical podcast called Probably Medicine, <laughs> yeah. where we guess diagnoses. And- I host a YouTube surgery channel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just show you how to do surgery with stuff you find around the home yeah and uh, look to be honest it mostly started in vines <laughs> i was just doing little <laughs> surgery vines but they took off and then i had my whole channel and you know what i i might not have a degree but i do have a lot of loops right <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of loops to my name and i have an agent so <laughs> now smile for my snapchat story <laughs> we're posting this live <laughs> Uh, I'm yes. warning you, I will be drawing a dick on the picture. Right. I hope you're okay with that. That's my thing. <laughs> Dr. Dick. <laughs> it's just my trademark. You've got to have a trademark in this business. You've got to have a USP. A hook. It's branding. Right. It's all branding. You know about branding. Right. You know advertising people. Right. I do. That, that is absolutely true. So you're writing on a show because you have a podcast. So we're writing on the show and we'll get to be on the show as well, yeah. which will be nice. Okay. But yeah, it's... It's been two months of learning about cool machines, but then also then having to write about them. Tell me about uh, what's the coolest so, thing about machines that you've learned. Uh, well, I now know how. Trying to, th- I now I now know a lot more about how rockets work. Okay. Um, I now know a lot more about how slot machines work. That was a fun one. Okay. Like, did you know? And probably half the people listening to this already did. I didn't. Um, that even the mechanical slot machines, the ones with the reels, not the video ones. Um, those are controlled by a randomized computer chip and the second you press the button to spin your fate is decided so so rather than um so it 
up until 1983, I think it was, when some Scandinavian guy like came up with this design and filed a patent for it, those reels were just mechanical things and certain symbols appeared on it less often and certain symbols appeared more often and so you've got a lower chance of getting the jackpot but it's still fairly fixed odds say you've got 22 things on the reel then you've got at most a 1 in 22 chance of one symbol specific symbol coming up which means you can't offer huge jackpots because the the slimmest chance you have the highest odds you have of any combo is 1 in whatever 22 to the power of 3 is right so which is high but not that high so then he came up with this other idea so each reel is linked to a virtual reel. And this virtual reel has, let's say, 128 stops on it. Mm-hmm. And different stops correspond... You can have more than one stop on this virtual reel that corresponds to one stop on the real reel. So you've got, say, two virtual stops that correspond to the jackpot on the real reel, but... 10 that correspond to the shitty fruit symbol that doesn't get you much and 20 that correspond to a blank spot on the reel. Thanks for tuning in to Probably Gambling. Right. Our, so, new, our new almost <laughs> podcast about the gambling industry. So if you haven't lost, if everyone hasn't already tuned out by this point, the second you press this button, yep. the real, the virtual reel spins instantaneously and gives you your combo. Right. And then it sends it to the mechanical reels, which then spin around and land on the thing that it decided five seconds ago that it was going to land on. Right. And they're, that's how that's how fruit machines work. They're the ghostwriter. They're the ghostwriter. Right. And then they're like, you're going to be doing this tonight. Right. And the guy in the front just goes, all right, yeah. man. <laughs> going to give them no money again? All right, chief. <laughs> if you say so. You're the boss. So that's how it works. That's how those machines work. Right. So basically, you're just pushing a button... You're pushing a button and everything and else is for show. a computer makes a decision. Yeah, the, the real stopping individually can, yeah. is all just to get you excited. Yeah, essentially a computer says, no, you can't have money most mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah, and it's, and it's also designed so that the mapping of virtual symbols to real symbols becomes less generous as you go along the reels. Because uh, they want it to kind of go jackpot, jackpot, blank. Or Jack, they they want you to get excited. If it goes, if the first one comes up as a blank, then you're like, ah, oh, this whole this whole spin is bunk, it's bullshit. Right. But if it goes high scoring thing, high scoring thing, nah, you're not going to win. That's much more exciting. Same as scratch cards always save the um, <laughs> like give you the idea that you're going to get two of a kind at the beginning because you scratch it from left to right, and then you're kind of like, oh one, all two, I'm going to win a half. So that's how they work. Hang on. So even, so they even want you to win. Okay. So hang on. But so you can win more at the start. No, no. It, you don't win if it come if it goes jackpot, jackpot, nothing. Yes. As the three reels come up, you yes. still win nothing. Okay. But it wants to give the impression of a near miss. Oh. So it wants to make you feel like ah ah, I could have nearly got it there. Whereas the the fact is, from the second you press the button, you either did or didn't get it. <laughs> I mean. I mean, it's clever. Yeah. I mean, it's really clever. I mean, it's that's probably why, you know, when you go to casinos, they're really nice. 
Oh, they're totally nice. I mean, I don't think that they'd be able to keep those casinos that nice if they weren't giving away more of the money, right? <laughs> it's almost like the odds are stacked in the casino's favour. Right. Like That's It's weird. almost like they have some computer chip that guarantees <laughs> the odds. Yep. They might as well just like randomly do it when you check in. They might. Yeah, do you just, know what I mean? Like you just you press one well... button once and they tell you how much you're going to win. Yeah. I mean, because they could do that. Because that's what it is across the board, right? It's just like, look, you're all coming. Just give us this amount. We put it into the randomizer. You either go home with more or less. Yeah. I also found out that slot machine designers divide customers into gamblers and fun players. Hang on. What do you mean? And there are two different types. There are two different types of players, and that's how they design the machines. So gamblers are people who go in wanting to win money, okay. and they're sort of serious about their slots, and they're serious about the gambling. And right. so their machines because they think they can beat the chip. Yeah, so their machines have so lots of multipliers. You chip, I'm getting you today. Totally. So the gamblers' machines have loads of multipliers and really high jackpots and lots of different ways to win money. Okay. But actually, quite low odds. But if you do beat it, you win a lot. And then fun players have machines that have lots of game elements and video things and interactivity. And you're not going to win as much, but it's designed to keep the really casual player going. Oh, this is fun! I'm enjoying this. Right, you get them in with like, you know, implying that it might actually be an interesting thing to do. Yeah, you get them in with like the Britney Spears video or the movie that you liked or... Well, that's basically what they say, like, yeah, because the thing about poker machines, like, uh, yeah, gaming machines is people say, oh, well, it's just a bit of fun. They're just having a bit of fun. But they get in with a bit of fun. And then once you're in, they're like, fuck that fun bit. Let's get (laughs) straight to the fucking, I'm going to get this fucking... Because that's a big problem in Australia, isn't it? That think, surprised me when I was there, how many of those machines are in every bar and I think at New Sa- in pub. New South Wales. I mean, well, firstly, Australian gamblers lose per capita uh, more than any other country in the world by capita. Like, really? I mean, yeah, it's massive. And, like, it's almost double America. Um, like, I think Singapore might be the only other country that's up anywhere near us. But it's like one of those, if you look at the, the graph, like it's Australia and Singapore right up one end and then, like, everybody else substantially yeah. less. Like all our sports betting and all that sort of stuff that like all our sports are intertwined with gambling now. And um, we've always been a bit of a gambling nation. There used to be that joke about, you know, the Australians would, you know, really gamble on like two flies walking up a wall. And there has been that inherent sort of like. I think it was in, I was in Australia and they had frog racing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) In a pub and they had people betting on frogs bouncing along a track. At my local pub, like, you know, which is a nice pub, like it's on Sydney Harbour. It's this like posh <laughs> pub on Sydney Harbour. They have little crab racing right. just in the afternoon and all the kids go around and gamble on these crabs racing. Get them while they're young. Get them while they're young, right? Get them hooked into this system. And there's, you know, there's casinos all over the place and the government becomes so reliant on the revenue that they get from the taxes and stuff in the casinos that they never say no to, right. to any of the stuff, you know? So it's, yeah, I mean, it's fucking crazy. But poker machines, I think at one stage, this may still be the case, but at one stage, New South Wales, one state of Australia had more poker machines than anywhere but Las Vegas. (laughs) Like one state in Australia. Fucking ridiculous. Can't go into a pub without there being pokies. Yeah, and also the sports. um, What's the thing in Australian pubs that has you bet on the horses as well? Oh yeah, name. like the TAB or the. Is that it? Uh, I don't know what the. I mean, but might... it was. It has the horse racing in it. Yep. But it's. Uh, it's just a machine that you plug your money into, but it right. has the races playing up there, and it was yep. just in the corner of half the pubs I went in. Oh yeah, pretty much every pub. You yep. got to have a bet on the dogs or the horses, and they have the TV screens, and you can bet for like eighteen hours a day. And 
Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, really ingrained in the culture. Yeah. Like, everything is about betting. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fucking I crazy. It is. I wonder what it is about Australian... Well, I mean, firstly, we were mostly populated by criminals. Oh, that's what I said. Do you think it's like you're all the descendants of someone's like, bet I could get away with stealing this bread. Right. <laughs> Double or nothing. <laughs> I shouldn't have gone for two loaves of bread. That's why they sent me all the way to Australia. Yeah. And then in their sentence, like, you, want, you can have five years in prison... Or this mystery punishment. I'm going the mystery. Yeah, I want to say what's in the box. What's in the box? <laughs> that's how oh, they Melbourne. All, Melbourne's in the box. That's how they all got to Australia. <laughs> it was like <laughs> you can have uh, eight years in a crowded London prison, or what behind curtain number two? <laughs> okay, here's here's a question. I don't know if you know this, but. What percentage of Australians now are actually the descendants of criminals? I mean... Is it actually as high and... I mean, look, 50% of Australians are... Pretty much 50% of Australians are like, you know, in the last two generations, migrants. So it would not be um, that high just based on that, you know, the fact that like we're a high migration country and have been. Um, So that would have... But that's an interesting question, and I'm going to Google and see if there is an answer to that question because, or at least an internet answer that question, uh, because I am interested in the answer myself. Um, Yeah, because I want because even at the time that they were transporting people to Australia, there were still other people choosing voluntarily to go there, weren't there? Right, free settlers and stuff. I mean, Adelaide and places like that is mostly free settlers. So where did most of the convicts land? Uh, Sydney and Melbourne. Okay, I think. Uh, okay, here we go. From January third, two thousand and fifteen. So the nice, the nice thing is, there's at least an up to date answer on yeah. Red, on Reddit for this one. So you know, it is on Reddit. So, let, but let's have a look. Uh, here we go. It started as a prim- prison colony. Um, uh, okay, here we go. Um, in total, one hundred sixty-five thousand convicts were sent to Australia. Um, okay. It doesn't really have a clear answer, to be honest, but not, not heaps. I wouldn't have thought. Well, 165,000. And that was how many generations ago? I mean, five, I guess. Five or six. Is that right? I don't, I mean, I would, I don't even know how you do it, the fucking maths on how many generations. Yeah. You start trying to work out, okay, how many I feel kids like, per family? I, I don't know like, what the average childbirth rate is. And I don't even know. Like, is it like we do generations now? Is it just like generation X and Y and millennials? Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think, feel like I've been alive for at least five generations. <laughs> yeah. Is it like a new generation each? I feel like we're getting fucking heaps quicker on generations. Cause was there. What are we? We're, do we, generation do we kind of y? X? I don't think we're generation X. I think generation X is. 70s ish really i think so i oh, mean now i'm gonna have to fucking google that to see what generation i'm in um oh, 60s because there was generation x right and then there was generation y i think i'm y i was a 1980 birth okay let's see what generation x says generation x let's see um i think it's like the first post-war families kids okay what well, says here yeah um, that's the, generation- the baby boomers are post-war right right so, generation born after the Western post-World War II baby boom. Uh, they use birth rates ranging from the early 1960s to the early 1980s. Okay. So, so I'm tail end of X. I'm definitely Generation X. I'm slap bang in the middle of X. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Generation X, Generation Y. 
and then millennials, right? Yeah. And that's just in my lifetime. And there was baby boomers just before me. So I don't even know how many generations. But that's not what generations are in families. We mean, you know, generations in family mean the next time you have kids. Yeah. Right? So, I don't know, five or six probably, I five guess. Five or six of those? All right. <clears throat> and what's the population of Australia? Is it 30 million? 24 million. Okay. Is it Canada that's 30 million then? Might be. I don't know. Mm. Welcome to guessing populations. <laughs> yeah. We've just got hired on a <laughs> just the world's longest dollars quiz show. <laughs> what do you think the pop <laughs> with no... and, and like unlike most quiz shows, they don't actually ever give you an answer. No. You never find out if you're right no. or someone just goes, Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Has anyone done a done a TV game show like that where, where no one really no like, one actually like, corrects the answers? Just it's Adrian. just called Sounds Plausible. <laughs> the game was... I mean, I think that's a really... How do TVs work? Ah, it's, uh, right. it's like, it, like lots of different fires that are different colours that make a face picture. Yeah, sounds yeah, plausible. Yeah, that's... I guess three, that's... <laughs> three points. <laughs> three points? Just randomly, just three, po- three points. And then they go, yeah, three points? Yeah, yeah three that points. sounds about right. That sounds about right. <laughs> and then the contestant goes, yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah. Just at the end, it's just what a group consensus. Well, basically, it's just basically what things were, what what a pub conversation was before the internet. Yep. Because at a pub conversation, a topic would come up and it'd be like, hey, Ham, you know, what was uh, Henry VIII's fourth wife's name or something like that? And because nobody could look it up, you would then around the table just come up with the best guess that you guys had. (laughs) It's probably Anne. There's a couple of Anne's. (laughs) Anne's. Does anyone have any strong feelings about who any of them? Anne or Catherine? I reckon it'll yeah. be an Anne or a Catherine. No, I don't think one of them wasn't called Sleepy. No, I think you. <laughs> Blitzen. <laughs> Sleepy and Blitzen. It was a, we're tossing up between Anne, Sleepy, or Blitzen at the moment. Isn't that, that wasn't that meant to be what the Guinness Book of Records was. It was supposedly introduced by Guinness the brewery to oh. settle pub bets. So here's the thing. And but that, that I, sounds apocryphal as well. That first, sounds like. Okay. So, firstly, here's what I think uh, is uh, I should know this. And of course, if you think about it for more than one second, which I obviously have never done before today, yeah. uh, you know this to immediately be true. But I was not aware that the Guinness World Book of Records was directly connected with Guinness the Brewery. Is that a fact? That is a fact. That is, is that a fact that everybody knows that I just have worked out right now? I don't know, but it, it's definitely a fact that it is connected. I don't know whether it's a fact or a bit of revisionist history on their part that it was it was to settle pub bets. I reckon it might have just been more to spark pub conversation and just be a talking point that'll keep people in the pub drinking. But I know it definitely was brought in as an almanac by someone from the Guinness Brewery to in some way facilitate pub conversation. Did you ever aspire to break a Guinness uh, world record? Because no. a lot of people do. Like, and I, I remember having a leaf through it one day, kind of going, what is, if I, if I were to, I thought this a little bit after the Sydney Olympics because Australia got into the European handball and I went and watched the European handball and our team was honestly probably the 11 people in Australia who knew the rules of European <laughs> handball. <laughs> but because we were hosting the Olympics, you get like... Oh, you get into every... To go in if you qualify, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I was like, we should have tried out for this. 
Yeah. Like if, if we'd trained for a couple of years, we could, we have, could have been in the Olympics. In the Olympics for this. Like, you know, and you always kind of have that fantasy of like, what is it that I could still get good at? If yeah. I needed to, like, if I wanted what to. could you be the best in the world at? Because some of the stuff in the Guinness Book of Records is just bullshit. I remember when they brought out the TV show, the, the second incarnation of the TV show. They basically wanted everything to be a record broken. They didn't want any failures, any misses. So they just, nearly all of them were new records. Right. Well, that doesn't fucking count. That, like, and I get that Guinness wants, like, the book publishers, who, by the way, I don't think are any longer affiliated. I could be wrong, but I think now it's a separate entity. Uh-huh. But I guess they want more categories in their book, and they want the book to grow every year. But it's bullshit. When you're setting a record for the first time, oh, most eggs sat on in a minute. You know, well... I bet I can beat this never-before-done task. Uh, fuck you. But I feel, I feel like maybe that was in the original spirit of the book, because at the start, that's all it would have been. Well, no, because I think, none of these things would have been... But I think the original spirit of the, the, original, original spirit of the book, they were collecting the... Um, they were collecting the, the genuine stats of what is the highest mountain, what is the longest river, who oh, is right. the tallest person, so what they, is the fastest... They didn't go this straight race to has ever been run. how long somebody's grown their fingernails. That yeah. wasn't first Well, some edition. of them, but they probably did collect some of those miscellany, but it wasn't necessarily from someone trying to get into the book because the book didn't exist. Uh-huh. And I remember it was Norris McWhorter and his brother, whose name I can't remember, but the brother got killed by the IRA and Norris was an incredibly racist extreme right winger. Oh, okay. Who were the first almanac keepers and publishers or editors wow. of the guide. All right. It's got a colourful past. It has. The, has it ever been made into a movie? Has anyone ever made a movie about like the history of the Guinness World? That seems like I a don't movie. Know. I bet it has. It feels like the kind of thing that Steve Steve Coogan was starring. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That seems like right based on a real life event, but done Just a sort with of quirky. a sort of quirky comedy. Like you know, you have all these people who are trying to break these records. This like cast of characters. And he's tr- now. Did I just make up Steve Coogan? Be being the right person for that, or is that really or a thing that exists? Have they made a movie with Steve? Yeah, either way, <laughs> great bit of casting. Sounds about right. <clears throat> yeah. Or you could Sounds do, plausible. You could definitely do a TV show, a series. Like, yeah. that'd be a good series. If you wanted to do a new historical drama, you know, but you set it in the world of when they first got <laughs> together with the, like, so you tell the story of the Guinness World Book of Records, but you get to surround it with this kind of weird and wonderful casting of all these, like, world record holders and stuff. It's that like she would be fun. Right? That's a good show. I think so. There you go, Hollywood. <laughs> Just send us 1%. It's yet another show. <laughs> you pitched an Adam Sandler movie last time we talked. Oh, man. I saw Adam Sandler had a big party the other night uh, here in Hollywood. Uh, he has a Happy Madison uh, yearly party and some friends of mine from the online world. I just saw they were tweeting they were going to a- a- Adam Sandler's party. And I was like, maybe I want to go to Adam Sandler's party. <laughs> that That seems like it would be... I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like. I bet it'd be a fun party. <clears throat> I think Given it that every would, right? single one of his movies now are just excuses for his friends to hang out. And have a party. He's yeah. pro- he probably was actually filming the party. <laughs> it's probably going to be the next movie. For his new movie, The Party. Um, <laughs> are you aware of um, the two Kiwis doing the worst idea of all time podcast? Yes. Tim and Guy. Yes. Now, really funny guys. I don't know Tim uh, that well, but I, uh, Guy I know a little bit and... Um, Really fantastically funny guys. Uh, Justin Hamilton's obsessed with this. So the premise was originally, did they watch Sex in the City 2? They watched Grown Ups 2. Uh, Grown Ups 2, 2 was, was the, the first, first one they did. Okay. And so it was a movie review podcast, but they watched the same movie every week every for week. a year. And then reviewed it. Straight afterwards. 
So they watch the entire film and then they start the recording and talk for about 20 minutes about what they experienced. And Every then they week. finished an entire year of Grown Ups 2 and then they started on Sex and the City 2. Right. Which is a full hour longer. And oh, and heaps more terrible. But yeah. Because even like Grown Ups 2 is pretty terrible. But Sex and the City 2 is like... I, I I've li- never seen it. I liked Sex and the City I, at well, the, the time. Well, the TV show had it definitely had its moments. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, oh, it's oh, it's terrible. It's written terrible for film. by the person who kept me away from your last podcast. Oh, yes, absolutely. Greg Barham. Uh, I knew the first time I ever heard of Greg was, uh, what was the book? He's, he's just not that into you, yeah. right? Which came out of a Sex and the City episode and became this like worldwide phenomena. And then a spinoff movie. And like, a, yeah, absolutely. It was a Drew Barrymore film. He was on Oprah. Like it was, you know, Oprah recommended the book <laughs> at the height of when Oprah recommending books was, you know, the biggest thing in the world yep. th- that you could do. And that saying became like a worldwide catchphrase and like you know that he he's just not that into you was the new like men are from mars you know yeah like it it's fucking incredible and i read that book when i was first doing comedy i was like in the, it was in the comedy section i don't think of, i read it and i'm not even sure it was like a comedy book it was really more a relationship advice book but i guess because he was a comedian in australia or whatever i don't know why it was in the comedy book section and i was just buying every comedy book at the time you know and reading yeah. everything and i read it and I was like, this is a nice guy. I was like, because it is kind of a relationship book. It's not the comedy book. And so after a while, it's a bit. But all the stories and stuff, you're like, this is a pretty nice guy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he is a nice guy. I haven't read the book, but no, but it Greg was, is a nice guy. But it's, yeah, well, when I met him, it turned out that, well, actually, when I met him, uh, it was in Edinburgh and he was having a really, really terrible time. And we were at the stand, uh, which is a good, uh, you know, place to do comedy. Um, but he, uh, he was. I remember that was the first time I met him, and I remember I, I could tell I was like, "You're not having the best time right now." Are have, you? There's been quite a few very good Americans who've come to Edinburgh and just had a mare, <laughs> just had the worst time. Remember? Well, I think that was at the height of like his audiences not knowing who, like he was trying to do, you know, his stand-up comedy that would have got gone very well in Edinburgh if he'd come in not being the guy who wrote. He's just not that into you. Right. I think there was a bit of that, you know, uh, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's just the wrong marketing right. or the wrong. Remember Morgan Murphy did Edinburgh a few years ago and she was in a venue that lasted for exactly one year. And so no one was coming to the show and she, and Morgan's wonderful. She's hilarious, but she was playing to us three disinterested wet punters. Right. <laughs> just sheltering from the rain in this place that they hadn't. Ex- it was in this place that just off one of those stairways that joins two different levels of the city. So it felt like half of the audience were just people who are trying to get from one place to another. And went, oh, what's this? So uh, just sit here and watch. It was pretty windy outside. Yeah. <laughs> 70, 75% of my audience came to get out of the wind. <laughs> Come see Morgan Murphy. Guaranteed not raining. <laughs> Take a dry seat inside. <laughs> Indoors, brackets, Morgan Murphy. <laughs> Taking sub-billing to the weather. The first time I ever went to Adelaide to do the Fringe Festival, it was a heat wave, as it can be in Adelaide, in sort of February, March. Yep. And I was playing the Nova Cinema. And I swear I, my show went well that year because it was one of the very few venues that had air conditioning. Oh. So people were just like, well, if I'm going to go and see a show, I'm going to see something um, in a place that has air con. I did a sketch show in 2003, no, 2004, um, 
in another venue that lasted for exactly one year. It was called the Pod Deco. And it was the old Art Deco cinema on Clark Street. Okay. And again, it was... I remember we were flyering. We got like, come see a sketch show, air-conditioned venue. Because <laughs> it's such a rarity in Edinburgh. All these places that people put shows in that are normally the storeroom of a university building that have not even any ventilation, let alone aircon. Well, it's a city that it's like, it's it's so rarely hot there yeah. that they just don't bother fixing it for when it is hot. They just yeah. go, you know what, we've decided it would be so problematic in this fucking old city, like, you know, where all the buildings are all fucking old and shit and whatever, the expense it would take for us yeah. to put air conditioning into any of these places and make it an effective business choice for the fucking nine days a year where it's necessary. <laughs> Well, it's just not, it's not, you know, I mean, it makes sense. But it, except that you say the nine days of the year, it is 30 days of the year every year. It's the same as London. Every year it snows at least once. Every winter, at least once, normally twice, it snows for a few days. Not Chicago level snow, but snow. And every year Britain just collapses. The entire sit, the entire country just grinds to a halt while people are baffled at this meteorological phenomenon that is right because annual this yeah, annual phenomenon yeah but it's it's small enough that we can't prepare for it adequately if it snowed all the time you'd be used to it and you'd know exactly yeah. what to do i've been in but, chicago when they've had five ten times that amount of snow and they just get the snow plows out in the morning people mate, shovel their drives and then mate I've, t- I've taken off in airports where the, the oh yeah where the pilot's like you know we just have to sit here for 30 minutes to melt the fucking ice off the plane yeah then we're going to fucking fang it and have a go. <laughs> I did a Canadian tour where that exact thing was happening. And you just see they have these de-icing trucks that come out and spray the wings and the right. moving parts. They're like, oh, <laughs> they you know, just... we have to spray and wait for it all to be off. Because we actually, if we fly in the air with any of it on, we will all die. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to take off through this snow. <laughs> this thing is no longer <laughs> aerodynamic. But, you know, we've all, got, we've all got places to go, so let's fucking have a crack. This but it's wing like when is re- now more of just an iceberg dangling off the side of the plane. But, ah, fuck it. If we gun it. It's like, it's like when it rains in L.A. I mean, oh, yeah. like, you know, people here, it's like... They've- I used to live by the freeway, and on a rainy day, you hear sirens constantly. <laughs> it's just as people spin off the road. They can't cope. And also, to be fair, it's partly because people don't know how to drive in the rain in the city, but also the roads are in no way equipped to deal with rain. Right. They have no drainage, and when it's hot weather most of the year, all the oil leaches out of the surface and sits on the top. So when it rains, then it's like a layer of road, then a layer of water, then a layer of oil. And then people driving on top of those three layers who don't have a clue what they're doing, just spinning wildly off the road. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Because again, it's so few days a year yeah. that they have not bothered putting anything in place to make it work properly. No. Nope. No, that's where you don't want to live. You don't want to live in somewhere that has something really bad happen only a few days a year <laughs> because you will not be equipped for it and it will kill you. That's why I'm going to move to an Antarctic research base. Right. Um, I mean, it is pretty much the same weather all the time, right? Yeah, I think so. I guess so. I think I think it. I think it definitely does still have a winter and a summer season. Right. I think there is that thing. Would of, you notice? I guess you still would notice because I mean you adapt yeah. to your environment. So I think you'd be when like, you're one of those researchers, there are only certain times of the year that you can get in and out. 
Okay. Yeah. All right. Because they drop them off and then they're there. How much? Here's what I was. I mean, you probably don't know the answer to this, but you are a writer from a prominent science program, so I can make a good guess. I imagine that you're. I give you a plausible sounding answer to this. Uh, Tell me this: How much? I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, There was an astronaut on. uh, what, what was it? Uh, kitchen. Was it a rocket? Was it, were they on a rocket? No, they weren't on a rocket. Although they were close to rocket the lettuce Ooh. called arugula, of course, in the United States of America. Uh, they were a guest on, um, not Kitchen Nightmares, Master Chef Junior. Master Chef Junior, Gordon Ramsay hosted a kids cooking show. Yeah. Uh, one of the astronauts who'd been to, been to space... Uh, came in and was like the guest in the okay. episode for the kids. You know, they got to meet an astronaut, right? That's pretty cool. I'd yeah. like to have met an astronaut when I was a kid. Absolutely. I would have been very excited. That was, yeah. my, that was my dream job as a kid. That was my, what do you want to be when you grow up? Astronaut. Right. Well, a lot of these kids were like, well, I, I either want to be a chef or I want to be an astronaut. Yeah. Right. And so. then I found out that astronaut training requires a huge degree of work and physical fitness. And then I thought, well, telling jokes is fun as well. So here's what I uh, want to ask you. Mm-hmm. How much when you're in space, yep. when you're an astronaut, like how much of your day is working? Is it like one of those things that you suddenly, it becomes like it's a really, it's just a 24-hour day job? Or do you think that there's times where you get to go and like, you know, watch Netflix or whatever and like, you know, just chill out and just be your own time or whatever? Or is it just like for the whole time you're in space, are you kind of just working? I kind of, I actually kind of do have an answer to this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we had Chris Hadfield on our podcast who was the Canadian astronaut, the one who did the Bowie cover from the space station. Uh And so we read his book. (laughs) Fucking Canadians. I know, right? (laughs) He's... (laughs) He... Like, here's the thing. He was fun and kind of funny, but at the same time, astronauts are so... Being an... It's so, like, I'm prepared for everything and I will do my work. And it's all very... Yeah. Like, he set out from his teenage years to be an astronaut right even though at the time canada didn't have any kind of uh space program right but he was like well one day it might so i'm going to learn how to be a pilot and i'm also going to get a science degree and he was like well these are the things you need if you're going to become an astronaut so i will become a test pilot and i will get a science degree and i will do this and then his book he's even talking about how after he came back from space and he became a sort of now he's a got some celebrity and he gets invited to things. So he was invited to an Elton John concert to be backstage and hang out. And he was like, well, I, uh, Elton knows I'm a musician. So there's a chance he might bring me on to sing a song with him. So just to be safe, I'm going to learn. Well, I presume if he is going to bring me on, it'll be to sing rocket man. So I'm going to learn all of rocket man and learn the chords. And make sure I can- <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like the level of astronaut preparation, just even in terms of like, oh, I'm hanging out with Elton John for the night. Well, right. better do the work, better yep. get it done. Uh, it's, um, and he does talk in the book about how they, they don't have much free time. I think, I can't remember the exact amount. They do have a little bit of downtime and relaxing and they have the sort of meal times, but it's very well planned out and everything's timetabled. And most of their day is doing specific tasks, whether it's maintenance or the experiments or and all preparing to do certain tasks as well. Cause if they're doing a spacewalk, the spacewalk itself takes about half a day, but then there's two days of planning and liaising with the ground crew and they're talking and revising procedures and going over what they're going to do and 
thinking through contingency plans if stuff isn't like it's it's so methodical and rigorous do you how how high uh intensity do you think it is do you think that it is mostly boring like it's mostly just kind of you know stuff that you know how to do and you're just like you've got a good crew and you're just ticking it all off and you're doing your you're going about your business or how much of it do you think is generally like thrilling and exciting you know day I don't by know, day because you're always feeling <clears throat> again i can't i I would imagine you're constantly doing different things and you have to sort of be a generalist. That The thing, again, the reason why it takes a certain mentality to be an astronaut is... Oh, for some reason that was Waze deciding right now to navigate... To oh, no, that was Siri. Siri, I must have accidentally pressed the button <laughs> and something in my last sentence was a question that Siri decided to answer. Um, but uh, they have to do everything. Like, they have to, before they go up into space, because... They have to be uh, mechanics. They have to be at least to a degree doctors because right. if anything goes wrong physically, they need to do yep. a certain amount of surgery or treatment on themselves. They have to at the very least had a medical podcast. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They've got to watch the loops. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Doc- Dr. Cuddy again. <laughs> Dr. Slice. Um Dr. Slice is not a real doctor. Do not use it. Uh, um, but it's, um, yeah, so I think they're constantly doing different things. So I don't, I don't know. I'm sure there are times where you go, all right, I've got to do this now. But I would hope that still the fact that you're floating upside down and surrounded by the majesty of space and a sight that most people, the vast, vast majority of the world never get to see. I think at any moment of boredom, you'd hope that you could look out of one of the viewing windows and see a see the majesty of the universe well that's what i would hope as well i would hope you would have that but maybe that's distracting maybe like during the day when they're getting experiments done they actually like close the windows like you have to on the plane yeah you know <laughs> and they're just like well you know what i can't be you've got shit to do today darren I... you cannot be staring into the majesty of space all day <laughs> you know that we don't get things done effectively when you can just out the window see and ponder the nature of our very existence i yeah because i I know as a touring comedian, I've, I get bored with nice hotels. Right. That, that used to be an excitement. Remember yeah. when, it, when an, a nice hotel was exciting? Right. They, they put chocolates on your pillow? I mean, it was exciting. It was and then you stay in a few and you're like, and okay, like, now right. I'm starting to pick between these. <laughs> now I'm starting to have judgments about something they used to think was nice. I think you'd be a bit the same about space. You'd be like, I mean, yes, it's kind of majestic and infinite, but at the same time... <laughs> You know, my friends at home are getting to watch Jessica Jones on Netflix. And yeah, and you're like, oh, the Nile Delta again. Right. <laughs> if I, have to I mean, see- do something new. Like, I mean, you know. <laughs> if I have to see one more peninsula. Could he not fire that fucking arrow? Like, <laughs> I'm staring at these things. Have you? I haven't seen uh, that show yet. Have you Jessica seen Jessica Jones? Yeah. Yeah, I have watched it, yes. People are very excited about I it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was very good. It was, it was, you know, it's not perfect, but you know what it is. But it, it was really good. I enjoyed it. Cool. Um, you, you use Siri? Uh, do you use Siri? Are I you a Siri of, user? I do a bit, but it annoys me about how bad it is at recognizing places. Okay, so what what would you use it for? I'm fascinated by Siri because I have an iPhone. I have a couple of iPhones and I you know Siri's been around for ages. She's been hiding in my phone, but I have not like Here's what I do use it Siri. for. Uh, what it does work for is very simple things like set alarm for 8:30. If I'd say that, it will do it. Okay. 
So I do it for that kind of thing. But then I sometimes trying to find businesses. It's got about a 50-50 chance of getting it. Okay. But by the way, when you say to Siri, uh, set alarm for 8.30, right? Do you then still check that the alarm is set for 8.30? No, because it says on the screen, it'll it'll go, okay, your 8.30 a.m. alarm is set. Oh, okay. And I'll see that and I go like, and right. then I'll see the little alarm icon appear in the top right-hand corner. So okay. I'm like, all right, got it. Right. But I do now have Siri set to English rather than American, because, which might be, a pro, might be one of the reasons why it struggles to find American businesses. Okay. Because it couldn't understand me. And I found myself having to put on a shitty American accent. And I'm not an accent guy. I'm not one of these people who can do voices and characters. So I was having to speak to Siri in an incredibly bad, like, Hey, Siri! <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> navigate to! <laughs> it's just like, uh, what are you doing? I mean, that's, yeah. So then then what happens? Maybe is, well, it was just British snobbery. Maybe Siri was like, yeah, fuck that American yeah. place. You call that food? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I'm a master of accents, as everyone can tell from that one. Oh, yeah. That was South African. <laughs> <laughs> You're known for your voices, aren't you? Oh, uh, yeah. You're yeah. that guy. Absolutely. Do you wish that you could... That's one of my biggest regrets in, uh, in terms of performance skills. I'm interested in what you better say. In terms of performance skills, when yep. you're like, what's missing from your skill set, uh-huh. I wish I had this... I wish I was one of these people who could reel out a string of perfect accents. Because I think it's a really useful thing to do if you're telling a story or doing a bit. I wish I could drop into a flawless Australian or American or Irish or even specific regions within those countries. I often I think it when uh, people confuse Adam Hills and I with each other that I'm sure that for Hills and I, and I was, I was saying this the other day, it kind of makes me examine the differences between us more than I ever would if we were just yeah. two other people. It's only the fact that people confuse us that, that brings it up. And, you know, I really love Hilsey and I think he's, you know, a great guy and also a really great comic. So none of this is, but I, I, I often think there's bits where it pisses me off because I'm like, I, why would you think that just from a work point of view, like, you know, why would you think that my, my approach to that would be the way he would approach it? Yeah. Not to put a value judgment, just to put a, we've clearly both made different choices. Yeah. But the other way back is that like, he must think if somebody mistakes it the other way, like, Will cannot fucking do voices. And yeah. Hilsey, like, He's I mean, very good at them. Oh, my God. Like, fucking, I would, in a million years, if you could take a skill from someone, well, you'd take two from him if you were going to take two skills from anyone. The first one would be his crowd work is as good as anybody going around. Yeah. and um, His ability to create a moment. Right. Because it's not just bouncing off the audience. Him and Ross Noble, I think, are the two who are most yeah. able. And actually, Phil Kay, when he hits it right, I think there's no one who can touch him. But their ability to make a thing happen like when they used to host late in life when they uh-huh. were alternating late in life hosting and they they sent someone to france one night i think it was france or maybe was it some country that some student in the audience was studying and had never actually been there yeah they got, they got money got together round, and they yeah and sent that person off to that country and then two days later they came back to late in life again and reported on what they'd found and stuff like that which i don't have yeah, they're, yeah they're, I think those are the two abilities I wish I had, is the ability to really create a moment and commit to a bit. Yep. And then voices and accents. Yeah, voices and accents. Uh, two just Andrew amazing Maxwell. skills. Andrew Maxwell is another one who is flawless with characters. And I just think, you know, when you see a comedian do that, when you can flesh something out with, like, not only do your act outs, yeah. you know, have... You take them fully into that world. Right, yeah. It's brilliant to watch. 
I mean, I think Eddie Izzard was always very good at it, even though Eddie Izzard, you think, has this very signature style of how he talks. Yeah. When he actually does characters, and he kind of loosely goes into them, that's what I love about it the most, he has a real ability to just draw distinct characters without fully committing to the accent, which I think is almost even better. Yeah. Like, because it's still clearly Eddie Izzard's editorial control, but you you, you clearly see these characters and these people. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a fucking great skill. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's kill them. Yeah. Kill them for their skills. If this was Heroes or one of those like sci-fi shows where you... absorb a, their talent. Uh, yeah. It'd be a comedian serial killer and he was going around and he was absorbing all the random talents from... So you'd see him each night and he'd be getting better. But at the same time, oh, here's a fucking good idea for like a show or a series or something. So it's around a comedian, right? But it's also a, a murder serial killer, like a story <laughs> that's set around this touring comedian, right? And because the murders happen to be happening, they discover in the same places as this comedian is like touring to, like, you know, these sort of things. But they're murders of comedians, right? Oh, this is good, right? You know, like, you know, some, you know, some guys like to kill, this guy just kills, <laughs> right? You know, like the comedian, right? And so basically what's happening is he's stealing like he's actually got like a mutant power. This is the twist, right? Yeah. It's not just he's a not serial stealing their material. Thing. He's stealing their. He's stealing their skills. Yeah. Yeah. So he's becomes. So every gig he does, like one of these people dies. But what you realize is that this guy gets better and better in that area of what they do. Who would be the comedians you would murder then first? If you had to draw a short list, what's the fewest comedians that you could murder oh, to get the skill set you wish you had? I mean, well, yeah, I guess that's a pretty good idea. Okay, so what what do you need? Do you need. Uh, so basically, yeah, someone who can create a moment. So you're going to have to kill Hilsey or Ross Noble pretty early on, yeah. I would have thought. Or, or I think a Phil Kay. Or but, Phil uh, Kay. But you've got to be careful about, do you absorb all of their skills? Because Phil's one of those people <clears throat> who's 50-50, either the best show you've ever seen or a train wreck. I mean, maybe that's something that actually, as the series goes on, the other bits of those various personalities oh, start also to, start to come out as well. negatives as well. Yeah, They're demons. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's not bad. That's good, actually. Yeah, that's a good. Like, yeah. That's an interesting twist. Because <laughs> otherwise, it's too simple. The show you need to have a negativity yeah, in there. You need to have right. a you need yeah. to have a challenge. Yeah, that's good. apart from the fact that you're being pursued by the police for murdering people. <laughs> well, I mean, not for a while. I no, mean, of it course. takes a long time for people to. You know, at the start, it just seems coincidental. Yeah, but obviously, it comes together. Um, okay, uh, what else? Yeah, so. I mean, you know, I, I to, for me, I'd immediately go to somebody like a Chris Rock or someone like that who I just think has just a, that maybe that preacher skill, you know, yep. like I think that's what it is that ability to just like hold a room like a proper, yep, you know, I'd say that's a probably good one. I'd yep. probably steal someone's work ethic. Well, Jerry Seinfeld's work ethic is that's famous, what, yeah. I might murder Millican. Sarah Millican. Sarah Millican. Okay. For both, for both work ethic and extreme likability. Yeah. Because I think she has both of those in spades. It's true. She she works like a beast, but also you just see people leaning forward to her. She just has something where people just love her from the second she says anything. Well, let's rob the world of her then. Yeah. So let's destroy that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> let's squash that soul. Once again, a, a white man doing something for women. Yep. Yeah, so far we've, we've, we've killed a black man, like an icon of the African-American community, and the most successful female comic in Britain. 
<laughs> yeah, typical. Two white guys doing a podcast yeah. and the first person you kill, what, you couldn't kill Seinfeld? I meant it as a compliment. Right. And I didn't want to just pick white guys that I'm going <laughs> to... I mean, and Anderson suggested Seinfeld to yeah. cover it, but he's a Jew and yeah. Kirshen's a Jew. And you thought he would have stood up for him, but no. If anything, I'm killing them because I'm, I'm anti-prejudice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to just kill... I don't, I don't want to just kill privilege. Right. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm not just going to stroll out and kill another white man doing well. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, so man. now we've got likability, creating a moment and voices. Yeah. Uh, oh. John, I think John, work ethic. John Stewart, just for that. I think he's like, you know, political. Political acumen. Acumen. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would say. Or maybe Colbert, because then he also has that committing to a bit thing that I I wish I had. Right. Because he has the political acumen, but also he has that extreme, fully formed characterization. And then uh, later on, your underlying Catholicism comes back to haunt you. Oh, yeah. That's the problem. Guilt. Yeah, guilt. You're you're accidentally absorbing the guilt. Yeah. Maybe Will Ferrell or something like that just for character work. Yeah, okay. Will Ferrell. Well, he also, Millican-like, brings funny to the table. Yeah. You know, he's just one of those people that you... Just oozes funny. Yeah, you can get away with anything. If Will Ferrell ran for president, he would win. Like, Donald Trump hopefully won't win, but like... I, I don't think he's going to win. I've started doing... I mean, people have been saying that for a while. I know. I've started doing a bit about Trump, but and I won't... Again, I won't start doing material at you, but the crux of the bit is that he's not... I've, I'm not worried that he's going to win, but I'm worried that he's normalizing awful behavior to the point that all the other awful people around him don't look awful. Oh, the less awful option. Yeah. He's making Ted Cruz, for example, look mainstream. And Ted Cruz, two weeks ago, spoke at a conference run by a pastor who is not just homophobic, but actively advocates the death penalty for anyone non-straight. Yeah. he, he and, he's, and Ted Cruz for, is just from, there. Like, from yeah. I, he's from ISIS, right? Because they believe that, right? It's the same thing. Yeah. At least in a Venn diagram, there would be a, a yeah. crossover. If, well, if, if that guy and a guy from ISIS met at a party, they would have at least one thing they could talk about in common. You know what? There's a BuzzFeed quiz for you. <laughs> a buzz, I bet this is easily put together. Um, who said it? Republican candidate or, or ISIS? Right. Yeah, easily. There you go, BuzzFeed. We're uh, helping uh, you out as well. I might... If I can be bothered, I'm not going to be bothered. No, you're that, not. But if anyone else can be bothered. If anyone else wants to and just give us a credit. We've given you the idea. If you want to put together a list of that that quiz and just make sure you credit it, just link us back. Just put our Twitter handles or the podcast handle I, in there. I would just like the whole world. Uh, there's a brilliant guy called Reed Parker who does a lot of really funny Photoshop stuff on the internet. You of, might know Reed. I do know Reed from every time, nearly every time I'm on your show and then suddenly I get at mentions on Twitter with very silly Photoshops. He, he, he has there's a, a couple of others who do it as well, but Reed seems to be the he, main he, one. He has a tumblr called uh better with batman uh, which is like <laughs> movies that basically just you know he's like photoshop batman into those movies uh, and why are you why are you a fan of that will anderson well no but here's the thing it was inspired by a conversation on this podcast where i was talking about everything being better with batman right, right. so it, so it's got a little you know inspired by you know that's all I want. I don't have time to make these movies. Yep. I don't have time to put together these TV series. My slate is full. But if you want ideas for a BuzzFeed article, this is the place to come to. Listen, go off. Just let's have a little inspired by universe. Uh, one of our one of our probably science listeners, and I'm going to have to look it up now to remember who it was. Um, but again, inspired by something that Andy started on our show, made the Dennis Miller quote generator. Oh, great. 
um, yeah, it just um, it gives you a a Dennis Miller simile every time you press go. Here we go, generator, Dennis Miller generator. Let's see if we, uh, Dennis Miller bot auto generates Dennis Miller quips, so you don't have to. Mac J, that was it. Okay. Uh, this guy is so ideological. He makes Jerry Van Dyke look like Luciano Pavarotti. <laughs> This guy is so obscure, he makes Sonny Corleone look like Alexander Wolcott. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very stupid. Uh, and he, yeah, he just again says, inspired by probably science, follow them there. If you want to do ISIS, who said it, ISIS or Republican candidate yeah. or ISIS? I think that's the way around you want it. Who said it, Republican candidate or ISIS? Little quotes. Right. There you go. A little quiz for you. Get that on BuzzFeed. Get yourself some re- <laughs> rebuzzes. Just credit us. That's all we want. That's all we want. I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time for these things. <laughs> we have time to say them and then move on. That's it. Uh, all right. What else? Uh, what, uh, what else have you been doing since I saw you? So you've been writing on this show. We've, writing on the that's, show. That's, that's basically where we got to. That took a lot of time. Because yeah. I, I hadn't... God, it knackers you. I hadn't done a writing job for a while and just being in an office from morning time to so what kind of like what's that like how many people are in the office do you have like office things you have to do together is there office etiquette is it a normal sort of office or is it was a pretty stripped down office it was pretty calm it's this production company called citizen jones and they have a building it's quite cool actually the building it's in is the max senate studios which is on in silver lake max senate was the guy behind the keystone cops and loads of those black and white comedies. Okay. So Chaplin, I think filmed in that building at some point. Um, and it was the, uh, it was the studios he made for Mabel Normand, who I wish I knew more about her. I feel bad for not knowing that. So Mabel Normand was a silent movie star in the early 20th century. Uh, mostly comedies, but she also directed and wrote films. So she was a female comedy director in Hollywood. 90 years ago, uh, when well, still welcome, there's almost none of them now. Welcome to Probably Mabel, <laughs> right? Uh, our podcast that it is probably about Mabel. No, she, no, she I, also lays a good claim to being the person who invented the pie in the face gag. Uh, are you really? Is that right? Straight up. I, I mean, I've, I've, I may have even talked to you about this before because it's one of my favorite things, but I would love to know who inv- oh, we have talked about this before, I believe. But going back and finding the people who first did like all those things that have become famous bits. Oh, I just like the one, I, the one I would love to know is who first came up with that thing in cartoons where the voice on the other side of a telephone is sped up. Right. That way. Well, you don't know that. Like who was that? Who came up with that joke? I, I hosted a uh, Sherlock event in Melbourne when I was home. Uh, Stephen Moffat and uh, Matt Gatiss, uh-huh. uh, the creators of Sherlock and uh, Sue uh, Virtue, who is uh, Stephen Moffat's wife. Right. Um, and she the producer of the show as well. As well. Yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, so it was like one of those things. There was like 2,000 people at the Regent Theatre, sort of Q&A style sort of yeah. you know, thing. But we were talking about the uh, in Sherlock the series 
series the where the the he the stuff comes up on the screen. Right, the text messages and stuff come up as And how that was actually a decision by, you know, one of the directors in the first episode and they didn't like it. None of them really, really liked it. Really? And it's become this thing where like uh David Fincher when he made Gone Girl said that he, you know, used it because he'd seen it in, in Sherlock and Really So then it becomes this thing that so like, people are using. Well it's like in uh sitcoms after the success of the office now half the single camera sitcoms in America have this interview device. But is it, yeah, it's like everyone's like making documentaries. family has it. Like how long have they been making this documentary about this family? And there's no, who are they being interviewed by? Yeah. Cause in the office, in the British office, like at some they, stage are they going to go? Yep. Well, that's the documentary made. <laughs> so, which they did in the American office. Right. And in the British office, they were extremely rigorous about always keeping within the world of this documentary is being made. And, but yeah, in Modern it, Family, it's just a sitcom, but for some reason, every few scenes, someone talks to the camera for exposition or just for for a little button on the scene. But there's no reason for them to do that. That's just now an accepted trope. That's just an idea that is absorbed into the concept of sitcoms. Although I guess like in our modern world where everybody is kind of, you know, um, uh, periscoping things and, yeah. you know, like, you know, broadcasting things, then it's probably not far from then that'll be the device. But like, I'm surprised you know, that was the one that took over and not the arrested development device of having a narrator. Because I, I love, because they do it perfectly. The way they have Ron Howard give, you can get so many jokes by... Someone says something, and then Ron Howard just goes, he didn't. <laughs> uh, he was, of course, lying. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> but they get so much across in that two, three words. It's probably a bit too smart, though, because Americans don't like being told what to do. So they're probably like, fuck you, narrator, telling me <laughs> how to feel about things and what he did. I'll make up my own mind about what he did. Yeah. But you get, you get so much exposition so quickly. And so, and no need to do clumsy, cheap exposition. How do you feel doing a comedy about America, about Trump or about whoever, um, being a non-American person? I like it because I get to, I get, I think I get two big credits where firstly, I get to observe a country as an outsider. So you get to see things that you get to talk as if you're seeing things you know, it's the kind of how does an alien perceive us? You get to go like, you do this thing and you get to point out that it's weird. But also, I think I get extra credit for knowing stuff, even though I've lived in this country for years. And I remember that. Or I remember that in the UK when I used to gig in the UK and my Canadian friends would go on stage and they'd go like, you guys do this. And then and the audience like, how does he know? And I, Oh, because he lives because because he lives in Palmer's Green. Right. <laughs> and has done for half a decade. And it's not a novelty. Yeah, he'd know if he could observe some shit about Canada. That'd yeah. be that'd be a trick because he lives here in England. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Of course you can, but do you ever get people kind of going, "Hey, you know, you're not from here." Like, not really. But I think I did a bit. I think we might have even talked about this on one of the first episodes I did with you, where there were there were times when I was fresh into the country where I think I was being a little smug and a little didactic and a little. Like, I was being there, oh, this is how the world is, guys. Right. So, going against every preconceived notion that Americans have about British people. Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) I remember doing gigs where I sort of had some quite left-wing chunks of material and doing it in North Carolina. And looking back on that, I was like, ah, you know what? There was a much smarter way to do that same stuff. You could have done that stuff without being so preachy and so up yourself. And also, 
acknowledging that maybe you don't know everything about the world. Right. Because I think at that time I was a 27-year-old and I was like, uh, I think I've got things worked out, guys. I think I know how this stuff works. So right. I, I, I even f- feel a little bit like with, with the gun stuff because the thing that always comes up is um, it, that Australia got rid of our guns. Yeah. And I am very proud of that and I'm glad we did. But, you know, it's very easy when you're in Australia to go, well, we got rid of our guns. Why, why won't America do it? And then you come to America and you were like, oh, yeah, because compared to here, we had like eight guns. Yeah. Like, Britain was the same. We, we had. We got Gary and Jerry to bring in their guns. Yeah. And then that was pretty much it. It cost us $9. <laughs> yeah, we were. Um, yeah, it's definitely a massive difference of attitude and culture. And I, I have a gun bit in my set now. But again, I, I very much put it in terms of I come from a country that doesn't do guns, so I find it hard to understand this world. Right. I try to put it on me as much as possible. And I even have a few digs at Britain's way of doing it. Like, I have a bit about what happens in Britain when there is a shooting. Like, I have a whole bit about how a police officer has to call another police officer to bring a gun to deal with the gunman. Right. Like, yeah, he's Which killing- to Americans is hilarious yeah. because then they're like that to them is crazier than what we think it is like here with all the guns yeah we have to send for a gun the policeman <laughs> has to send for a gun like he has to hang on what yeah they <laughs> have to show up like right. oh yeah he's killing loads of people so yeah. i think we're gonna need a gun here yep so you got the appropriate forms we just <laughs> <Yeah>. need to <laughs> it's better not be like last time where right. it turns out he didn't need a gun so so um yeah so it uh so I try to put it in those terms. I try to make it. I try just try to make it less smug. I try to be less smug than I was. I try to have some humility in there because I think looking back on some of the stuff I was doing, I was like, ah, you know what? You came across as a bit of a dick there, and you maybe weren't as informed as you thought you were. And even if I still think I was probably on the right side of the politics, the angle I was coming at it was sort of wonky or not as well thought out as I thought it was. Oh, so you were doing what most opinion on Twitter is now. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find Twitter's fairly accurate. People pack a lot of opinions into those 140 characters. And I mean, they, not a nuance. The one thing that Twitter has taught us all, I think, is that snap judgments are always the best judgments. Oh, totally. And the best thing to do is to never empathize with... No, not any side of an argument. <laughs> any. And that's something that I'm trying to do a lot more because... It's like, look out for what's wrong in something first. Oh, yeah. That's, that's what Twitter has taught us. And uh, yeah, it's something I'm, tr- I'm honestly trying to do. And I, maybe with limited success, but I know it's so easy to see anyone from the opposite side of you as this awful monster. And then I realize, hang on, this person that I'm arguing with on the internet right now holds opinions that are no more right-wing, possibly even less right-wing, than my mum. Right. My mum, who is a card-carrying Conservative Party member, wishes Thatcher was still alive and leading the country, and has many of the opinions that go along with that set. Uh And I love her. She's my mum. I argue with her and my dad. I argue with them when we're back home. But I don't... But I argue with them... In a civil and courteous, we disagree on this, and we know we disagree on this, and you know I'm going to disagree with you on this, and I know you're going to disagree with me on this, but I'm not like, you fucking bitch. You zombie Thatcher-loving bitch. Fuck you, you fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and just trying to 
remember when I see people who have those opinions on the internet that they're also probably lovely people. My mum is a lovely person with some non-lovely views, in my opinion. Like, she's she's a very kind and generous and warm-hearted and good host and very loving person who has political views that I find abhorrent. (laughs) Right. And trying to remember that everyone... I think it's it's that same as that that write a piece of writing advice when you're writing a scene. Uh, everyone believes they're right. No one thinks that they're the ones doing the wrong thing. Everyone believes their aim is justified. Right. So, like right now, when I th- I find the fact that the Conservative Party just voted well, with a lot of support from the Labour Party just voted to bomb Syria, and I find that awful. But I don't think because you love ISIS. Yeah, because I love ISIS and I support their goals. And, uh, and, and, lots of, and hello to everybody from the NSA who's yeah. listening to this part of the podcast. Please rate it on iTunes, five stars. <laughs> and even the things that they're, they're doing with austerity and destroying public works. And I, I find that utterly despicable. The fact that the Conservative Party is currently dismantling the NHS and they're ideologically opposed to welfare and they're using this austerity and public debt as a sneaky way to do that. I still, Hello to everyone from the British Secret Service who's now yeah. listening to this podcast. Please remember to rate it on iTunes. I still have to stop and remember that most of the people doing that do believe that they're doing the right thing. That I think they're horribly misguided, but I don't think they're doing it because they're like, yeah, fuck the poor. I think, they, I think they are utterly unaware in many cases of their privileged position in society and utterly out of touch with the realities of what it is to need those services. But I don't believe they're inherently, or most of them, some of them I think are generally general, genuine shits. But I think most of them do believe that they're doing the right thing. They're just wrong. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I mean, I, 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 like, I often get mad at people you, 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 and try to check myself when I get mad at people for doing exactly what I w- was doing myself 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, here's a com- more comical example of it. The other day I was watching some fucking, uh, you know, comedian complaining about how they were just about to turn 30 and they yeah. were getting really old. And, like, I was just like, you know, you just they're going, oh, fucking shut up. Yeah. You're barely fucking 30 and you're like, oh, I'm getting old. Shut the fuck up. What the fuck do you know? But at the same time I'm like, when I, I know when I was turning 30 I was doing fucking material about how I felt like I was getting old because you know what? When you're 30 you feel like you're getting fucking old. Yeah. Turns out you're a fucking idiot. You're not old at all. But uh- yeah, I'm now in the second half of my 30s and I'm feeling like I'm getting old because I'm halfway to 40. Right. And I could say that now and someone who's halfway to 50 would be like, shut the you fuck up. fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, I think you have to... Like, and, even, uh, even one, trolls online. I remember being an art... Right. When I first got on the internet and I was 16, I remember being a dick. Right. I remember sending... I remember having, there was about a week when I was on IC, it was ICQ chat and I found a, like a Christian room and I was going like, oh, Jesus is a fucking idiot, fucking Jesus. And, and I, I remember, like it's still, like, I still feel a wince at the memory of being that cock. And I remember like the people on the group just being nothing but patient and lovely of just going like, oh dear child. <laughs> like it was just, like they responded perfectly and I came out of it looking nothing but bad and they came out of it looking nothing but good and I look back at that kid and just go, you idiot and you little shit and you awful person. But I try to remember that when I've, when I've had troll people trolling me online, when someone's seen me on TV and not enjoyed something I've done and they're like, you fucking 
fag, just fucking TV, stupid dick. You think you're funny? You're not fucking funny. And just go like, yeah, you know what? If I, if, if 14 year old me had Twitter, if Twitter started 20 years earlier, I, I might have been that person. Right. And I'm not that person now, but I know what that mechanism is. And I feel embarrassed and mortified that I was that person, but also kind of know, oh, you're an idiot kid and you do idiot kid things and you should know better. And I should have told. And I think even if I was in the middle of that and someone has stopped to go, what are you doing? Do you realize those are people and you're coming across like a dick? I think even 16 year old me at that moment would have just gone, oh, God, yeah, that's awful. But they didn't, and I was just in my bedroom, and no one was there to, or, or whatever. I don't think I had a computer in my bedroom at that point. I was in the room that had the computer in it in the house, and no one there to check me and see what I was doing. And I was like, oh, oh, God. Oh. Uh, but, uh, but absolutely, you're right. Like, I mean, we're, all of us have done terrible things. I've, I've started doing this thing now, and again, I'm not promising this will last forever, but it's amusing me at the moment. Uh, when anybody who like comes after me online who's still got the egg on Twitter, you know, still got the original avatar, the little egg, uh-huh. um, I now just tweet back an egg recipe. <laughs> like, and I, I'm sure it confuses most of them because I'm sure they don't even understand what the joke is or the point of it is, but it's very satisfying. Yeah. And then I just, and then I just mute them. So, so I'm not blocking them, but I just like, you know, I just mute them. So I don't see anything else they say and they just get my egg recipe and then I move on. My tactic and my, (laughs) that's great. My new tactic. And it was one that I borrowed from Joe Lysett is to treat everything as if it was a compliment. Oh yeah. And thank the person for replying. And I've had one victory off of it. And I've had a couple of like (laughs) ones that have gone all right. And a few people who've kept it going. And I've had one like touche that was funny and it was someone who tweeted something like it was again that tv show that i hosted a few years ago and someone said like what are you doing in that show you're about as funny as aids and i responded with something like um thanks so much but you should know that some people don't find aids funny at all uh choose your compliments more carefully next time (laughs) and i actually got from that one i actually got a yeah fair play that was good Ah <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Like sometimes I think that I, you know, it also depends on I guess on your state of mind and stuff. But I certainly have found myself. There was this guy. Uh, they played my um, uh, last special on the ABC after Gruen had finished. So uh-huh. like we did the season, and then Makes the sense. next week they played the special, and. I had this one guy like write angrily online, you know, like one of those things. Oh, you know, Will Anderson should get the writers from Gruen to write his jokes for his stand-up special to <laughs> blah blah blah. And like in the old days, or even I don't know. Like I mean, I still obviously like got upset about it enough that I'm repeating it to you. Yeah, like, it's you still know, like it, it's, it, as much as you go like you fucking just ignore yeah, them, you just ignore right. them, and you go like, nope, nope. Yeah, remember I mean, it's there, like you know, without a doubt. And uh, but. What I like to think I'm at now is where I can acknowledge that, yes, of course, it's got to me. The fact that I'm telling you about this right now, yeah. it's got to me. Well, particularly and- that way around as well, because I I would have thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gruen obviously is a show that you're very involved in and I'm sure you're proud of it, but the stand-up show is the most you. It's mm. the most personal you. So it's basically saying the most distilled version of what you are as a comic is the thing he doesn't like. Oh, absolutely, right? And so then the second thing is, guess who the writer of both those things are? <laughs> right. The same fucking guy. Like, it's me. You know, so, like, I understand that what you're... 
so uh, like so in my head I'm now at the point of going you know like because you want to fucking respond you want to go well it's the same fucking person you fucking idiot I write you know like yeah. whatever but then I'm like why am I getting into this I, like I know I'd almost like to go to the IMDb page where it just says written by Will, I presume it says written by Will Anderson but, and then just screenshot that bit and just go I did but it's also one of those places where you want to go look what basically you're saying is that there are some parts of my work that I produce that you really enjoy yeah. And there are some parts of my work that I produce that you don't enjoy as much. That's fine. I'm the same with a bunch. Like Kevin Smith does a bunch of podcasts, and I listen to one of them. You know, because I really like that one podcast, but I yeah. don't enjoy the other ones as much. That doesn't make me like him any less. You can like, so, you know, you can just like me on Gruen. You don't have to be so angry about the fact that you don't like this it's other thing. It's amazing how furious it's a different get. thing. Like, did you notice how I wasn't talking about advertising and those other guys who were normally on the panel weren't there? It was a whole different set. It and was everything. just me standing by myself drinking beer. Do you notice how I was drinking beer and how I don't normally do that on the TV show you watch? Turns out this was a completely different thing, like a completely different. But you're absolutely right because to me, the thing I'm defensive about is the stand-up show. Yeah, if it had been the other way around. I wouldn't have minded because there's a constraint to that show. If someone says, I love your stand-up, but I don't think you're funny on that television yeah. show, I would have been like, fair enough, because I don't think I am as funny on that television show. I can't be. it's not be your job of... to be as funny on that television Absolutely, show. Absolutely, right? Yeah. Other people have to talk. It'd be weird if I just did like... <laughs> they you were know, just all sat there and you just did half well, an hour did, stand-up. Yeah, just like, here's some new thoughts I have, guys. Anyway, good to have you here this week. <laughs> See you next week. But so I, I'd like to think that I'm now at the point where I go, this is my process of going through that rather than, yeah. you know, getting angry or mean to that person. So Yeah, I think that's healthy. <clears throat> I think it, it's more healthy than the other one. And also just realizing no, no comic appeals to everyone. There's no, no art form, no musician, no uh, com- author com- appeals to everyone. But comedy is also, there's a, I mean, very subjective. So, so but also people get so furious. I can't, it's weird how furious people get at the idea that someone tried to make them laugh and missed the mark. Right. It's amazing. Like how mind numbingly angry people can get at the, the, he, he attempted to bring some joy into my life, but the way in which he attempted to do that was not the right way to bring joy into my life. And so I'm more angry than if he hadn't existed. But also, if I if you were in a room and being forced to experience it, sure. Yeah. But most <laughs> of the time, TV. most of the time, it's for shit that you can choose to not be experiencing. Yep. Like, I mean, I always think if you pay fucking fifty dollars and you've come and seen me do a stand up show and you have not enjoyed it, like, then okay, there's a certain sort of like I can understand that. You know, yeah. I'm I'm right there and you're sitting in a room and you've already paid and you're like, I get that, right? I can understand yeah. that sort of idea. But if you're sitting watching fucking television or like you're on Twitter or whatever and you don't like something that somebody's like, Okay, we'll just Yep. But, like why <laughs> why are you so angry about jokes? Jokes that like Let's be fucking honest, are not changing the world. I've been talking about marriage equality in my Australian stand-up shows for 17 fucking years. And guess what gay people can't do in Australia? Get married. Nothing I say or do makes any fucking influence on how the world actually works. And you're mad because I was trying to make some jokes about maybe some shit. Maybe not writing it well enough. I mean, maybe not. But maybe. my point is, why are, you getting, <laughs> why are you getting angry at someone maybe you should say it louder. clearly has no yeah. fucking influence at all? Right. All I'm trying to do is kind of just like, let's have some laughs. It's a pretty sad world. I can't fix any of those problems. Fuck so. you, you fucking dick. <laughs>
Fuck you for trying to bring joy into the world. Fuck you. Can't wait to punch that guy in the face for attempting to make... Yeah, see how that face made attempted to make me laugh and didn't? gonna fucking kick it but also the 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 thing that always fascinates me is the idea when somebody like will attack me going you're not funny and i'm like here's the thing like i'm not even sure i would be to my taste like i don't look for comedy that's like what i do like in the comedy that i consume you know um i i I can totally understand that i might not be to somebody's taste in, in in comedy but like i've been doing this professionally for like 18 years and like you know I don't like. I walk out there. I'm the guy who has to stand there and yeah. know if people are laughing oh, or not. Who says that about anyone? When, like, when, when I've heard other comics kind of go like, "Well, Dane Cook's not funny," and you go to you and, I mean, and to me, to be fair, like Dane right. Cook's comedy isn't to my taste. It's but not could, my kind of comedy. But I could find but you he, thousands undeniably, of people that like <laughs> he has he has his income, which has come almost exclusively from standing in front of an audience, talking into a microphone, telling jokes, right has bought him a very nice house. Right. Like, he is undeniably, objectively funny, even if he isn't subjectively funny to you. He might not be your taste. I don't find you funny. Great, fine, whatever. Yeah. But the idea that somehow, like, that could be an insult to somebody, like, you know, as who makes their living doing that, yeah. it's like, that's a weird place to start. Yeah. I'd love it if someone actually... Like tweeted at me, you are not to my taste. <laughs> you are not of my specific style of comedy. Oh yeah, pause. Yeah, of course. And we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Even though for the uh, audience at home, it's like we never went away. I know. Do you actually leave in the quick break and we're back? Oh yeah, I leave in everything. Right. Um, As a stylistic choice or because you're not good at editing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look on our, in our little Venn diagram. Yeah. <laughs> if you were doing if you were doing a BuzzFeed list of like, uh, is this a choice that is made for stylistic reasons, or is this a choice that is made for convenience reasons? I feel like it would be hard to tell those two things apart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of both. A bit of both. Um, I kind of my thing is always like, for example, I used to listen back to every episode and uh, like put a description of what was in the episode, in, and I, I used to work hard on trying to make those things kind of funny and interesting. Uh-huh. But what I noticed that meant was sometimes, like for example, this one, if I recorded this and then I didn't have time to listen it back for a while, like I, then the episode just wouldn't go up. And so now I just give them simple like you know descriptions, and I'm sure there are some people who miss the descriptions, right? Yep. But I've not had one person say I missed the descriptions. Uh, and secondly, you get more of the podcast. And I think if people were going to make the trade-off, much like you, you know, your two days it rains in LA, we just have the trade-off of like, you know, this is what yeah, the, the cost that comes with living this lifestyle. You get more podcast if you have less description. Yeah. I feel like it's a small sacrifice to make. Cause if I don't have to put in like a detailed description, all I have to do is come up with an episode like name. And then I can just like, you know, top and tail it, load it into the internet, <laughs> bang, your podcast is fucking up. But in the old days, I had to listen and oh, find the, the oh, fucking, nobody needs Listening to Listening back that. to our shit. Right. Well, I've already, anyone would do it. Well, I mean, I've already heard all the things I've said. Yeah. And then I've just recently More heard words. all those, your things <laughs> you've said, so. <laughs> like, if I can listen a year later. Like, uh-huh. if that was the schedule, like, you know, if you could do them all and then a year later go back to them fresh and, and listen to them all. And do, yeah, I think that'd be great. You'd find real new joy in it. But anyway, 
all right. So uh, look, we were we were finishing it up anyway. So but yeah. you know, so let's get towards the end. Uh, this this is going to go up. Uh, oh, probably you know towards next weekend okay. probably. So do you have any uh, do you have any dates or anything I think that I've people? I've got some UK gigs. I think I'm in Nottingham at just the tonic. Nottingham and Leicester and Loughborough just the tonic on the weekend before Christmas, which I'm. I like that club and I like the people who run it, but also I know in Britain the weekend before Christmas. That's our Black Friday, by the way. That was dubbed Black Friday by comics a long ago before British shops started to do Black Friday the day, the day after Thanksgiving, which we don't have in Britain. It's very weird. Um, do you have any version of that? We have the Boxing Day sales. Yeah, in we Australia. have the Boxing Day sales yeah, as well. Okay. But for some reason, Black Friday has been a thing the last year or two where they decided. Oh, we can get some more shopping out of these people. But uh, Black Friday for comics is the Friday before Christmas because that's where you just watch Facebook and Twitter and see all of your friends talking about the gigs they just died in. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the worst. The Friday before Christmas is A, all Christmas parties. B, Friday, which is notoriously the toughest night of the week anyway because it's people who are at the very end of their work week but going into the weekend. So they've been working all day. They're tired. They got off work at six. They start drinking and they don't have to stop drinking because they don't have to get go to work the next morning and then combine that with Christmas parties. <laughs> it's just a clusterfuck. It's uh, the worst. Maybe people... Uh, so will... don't go see that. Or do, do. Go and see. If you've ever wanted to see me struggle, if you're a fan of comedy and wonders, you know what? I wonder what comedy's like when it's not going well. Yeah, what, what about these gigs they always complain about? Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to go and actually see one of those live rather than just hear the description. I think you could go to a gig and enjoy it on that basis. Like, I had some people, I'm, I'm in Denver. Well, probably by the time people hear this, maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm even done in Denver. But if I'm not, I'm at uh, Comedy Works South. I imagine there's been some Christmas parties at that being uh, mid-December. So, will, but I find I've done American <clears throat> Christmas parties and then nothing like the British ones. And I mean, imagine, I would guess Australia is probably more at the British end of the spectrum for that, where they're just nightmares. <laughs> they can be the worst. Well, I mean, people don't want to be there for a start. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think maybe that's what it is. American comedy clubs don't have that thing where an entire company decides, you know what, we should go to the comedy club. And the company pays for it. And so there are 30 people sat at a long table with Christmas hats who have no desire to be there. And it's just delaying the point at which they can try and cop off with the secretary. Absolutely. You are like the opposite of foreplay. You're cock blocking. Yeah. Essentially, are. you are cock blocking for an hour and a half. Every minute you do over your time. They're looking for the red light before you are. Yeah. They are. Like, That's your light, mate. That is your light. You got to oh, get off. Hang Why on. is he still? Why did you what? start another bit? He hang just on. started another bit. He literally opened another bottle of water. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> it's just. Wendy said she's going home at midnight. <laughs> it's. And I've been lusting after her. Uh, I yes. Yeah, so um, I was going to say that uh, Denver. I'm in Denver. Fuck. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, so uh, okay. So you've got those dates in the United Kingdom. Uh, yep. People can listen to Probably Science, of course. Please do. They can find you on Twitter at Matt Kershaw. Yeah, I'm Matt Kershaw on everything. Okay. There's, there's no other many. Matt Kershaw. There is one. He's an Israeli lecturer, and. He's down on page five of Google. What is it? What is he lecture? What what's his sure, area of expertise? I should know this, but I can't remember. But I know he's something in academia, and he's from Israel. Okay. And he's it's hard to find out now because it because turns you've out comedian, knocked him down. I kind of it turns out only by virtue of the different weight that Google places on the comedy and entertainment industry world and academia. And it turns out that. 
Israeli academia is slightly less popular in search rankings. I mean, at the moment. At the moment. But it's time will come. Far less valuable. He's definitely the more important person, but not according to algorithms. I mean, who knows, though? I mean, you know, has he been asked to write for a science show? Probably. No. Uh, probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what he's a lecturer in. Right, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. I go, yeah well, who are we to judge this guy that I know nothing about? Why am I saying he's never... Why am I ruling anything out for this guy I know nothing about? Yeah. This guy I have made not even the slightest effort to discover more about. Uh, my Fire at Wool tour is on uh, sale at the moment in Adelaide, at Brisbane and Melbourne. Uh, Sydney, one night only, April the 7th. Not on sale yet, but it's at the Sydney Opera House Concert Hall. So uh, keep that night free for when that's coming. In Perth, it's going to be early May. That will be on sale soon as well. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, the 6th nice. and 7th or 7th and 8th of January. I've really got to check those dates, but it's around then. Uh, the Udder Valley Comedy Festival oh. is happening. There in Hong Kong, and I'm part of that doing uh, my free will show for two nights only there in Hong Kong. So, if you're in Hong Kong or you know someone in Hong Kong who'd like to come and see the show, send them along. That'd be cool. Uh, All right. I think that's it, right? I think so. That feels like a podcast. Thanks so much for coming over. Mate, thanks for having me as always. All right.